All right, thank you, choir, for that special come unto me, a promise that Jesus makes to all those who follow him, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. So what a promise that the Lord has given us. We're going to talk about discipleship this morning from Luke chapter 9. If you want to turn over there, Luke chapter 9. A couple weeks ago, you know, we went on a family vacation. We went to get, uh, Pigeon Forge area in Tennessee, and it was a good time for our family to, to enjoy uh, being together. And uh, for a couple days we were there, uh, we decided we would spend some, some money and ride some of those uh, tourist attractions that are there on the side of the road that your kids, you know, uh, look at, you know, see an upside down house or they see a couple of these different uh, things that uh, cost about $75 a person uh, to go in and I got all these kids and you got to get a loan uh, to get in there and it lasts about 30 seconds and all that. But uh, so my kids are getting old enough now that they want to do some of those things. You know, we used to say, oh, this is kind of scary. You know, you don't want to do that. And uh, but now, you know, they they uh, they, they want to do some of those rides. So they had one of those uh, rides. They've started doing some of those uh, coasters where you get in uh, in the little cart and they take you way up up the mountain hill and uh, and then they let you let you down and you got the brakes. That's all you got is brakes. No seat belt. No thing over the top. You know you're on this coaster and uh, and and you go down like like a like a roller coaster. It's just basically using the gravity to get you down. And uh, I didn't see anybody falling off, so I thought it would be safe for our kids. And um, so we, we decided to go in there and, and get in line and do one of these, uh, one of these coasters. One of these, my kids, you know, are, are, are kind of like me, a little bit cautious about some of those things until, uh, and, you know, until you see that, okay, everybody else seems to come off of it okay. And so we're going to do, well, my, uh, we rode one of the rides with some of the older ones, uh, Joshua and Annabelle, my two oldest, and, um, and, and Jed, who is my five-year-old in kindergarten, he sees them do it, and they come off well, and he says, I'm, I can do that. That's for big boys, and I'm a big boy. I thought, okay, well, did he get it? well, he couldn't ride it himself. He had to sit in my lap. And so we get up there and get the coaster, and it goes up, and it's going up, 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 uh, you know. And uh, so we, we get to the top, and obviously it lets you go. There's a moment where you click, 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 click. You know, and he's doing pretty well. And then we get down, and you know, he's just silent. His eyes is about this big, and we're going down. And I'm trying to hold the brake a little bit to slow it down a little bit. And we get to the end, and uh, we come down. Of course, you know, it takes longer to go up than it does to come down. And uh, and so we get down to the end, and uh, all his siblings are standing there. And I was kind of surprised that he would go on it, you know, uh, as cautious as he is. And he got a, he was so much fun. It was so much fun. And uh, he was excited, and we got a picture, and he saw himself in the picture, and he thought this was, you know, this was great. Well, we went to the next, um, down the road, to the next uh, roller coaster, cart. It's the exact same thing. And uh, we was going to go, and, and so okay, Jed, you want to go on this one? No. Um, this one's for big kids. The other one was for little kids, and I'm a little kid. Okay, <laughs> change his perspective. That one go. He had all these different excuses. That one goes up in the woods, and we and that's scary. We want to go up in the woods, you know. So so okay, all right. And so we went on it with some of the others. But Adeline, she was over there. She's our most cautious. So oh, she's seven years old, and she she wasn't going to even look at the rides. She said, no, I'm going to go. And that's fine with me because I don't have to pay a ticket. <laughs> you don't want to. And, uh, but Jed had second thoughts. 
He tried that. And he said, it kind of makes my tummy feel weird. All right? So, yeah, going up and down and down and around. And so he, he, you know, he said, you know what? That, that's not really for little kids. And I'm a little kid. All right? He changed the perspective. Well, at five years old, you can be a big kid or you can be a little kid, depending on what's going on. That's fine with him. But I think we kind of find a place in Matthew 16 and Luke 9 where Peter's on this roller coaster. And at one moment, he makes this wonderful statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's hit his high moment. And Jesus said, Simon Barjona, blessed. This statement, upon this rock will I build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, Peter has just had his high moment. He's on the top of the peak. And then Jesus makes another statement and says, if you look in Luke 9 in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And then we have verse 23 in Luke, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We read in Matthew 16 the fuller account, a little more detailed account than what Luke records. If you do a harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that gives us an in-depth study of of what the, the life of all that Jesus said. Now, each one of the Gospel writers wrote for different theological purposes. This is not a chronology of Jesus' life. This is not necessarily a, bio, a biography, but this is, this is a theological purpose of each one of the books. And we can harmonize all four of them and, and get more of the conversation they have. However, we read in Matthew 16 what Luke chooses to leave out. The rebuke of Peter. Luke chooses to leave out that information concerning Peter and his rebuke of the Lord and then Jesus' response to Peter. Peter at one moment makes this wonderful, powerful statement that Jesus hangs as the champion motto of the church. A powerful statement. But once Jesus reviews to the disciples his intention and his purpose of coming to this earth, he's going to be taken by sinners by their hands. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be crucified and killed. And on the third day, he's going to resurrect from the dead. That rubs Peter the wrong way. And Peter goes from the top to the bottom and starts to get second thoughts. Maybe this is not for me. Maybe I'm not a big kid like I thought I was. Maybe this following Jesus is not what I thought it was going to turn out to be. And Peter makes this statement. Now they are all shocked by what Jesus has just said. Peter, like all the other Messiah waiters, is expecting a wonderful end to the story. A crowning king. A ruling warrior. A champion. They are looking for a man who will walk into the temple and cast out the money changers with a whip. They're looking for a man who will get rid of the nasty sinners of the world. Who will deal with all the corrupt politicians, the murderers in the streets, 
The sicknesses in the hospitals and the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the wife beaters and the child abusers and the warmongers. But this type of Messiah that Jesus just described, one who's going to be taken, suffer, bleed, die on a cross. Peter starts to have second thoughts. And he tells the Lord in a, in a fashion in Matthew chapter 16, Lord, we're not going to have any of this talk about death. We're not going to have any of this talk about dying and suffering and being taken. You're going to be king. You're going to overpower the Romans. You see, Peter was putting Jesus in his place. In Matthew 16, he actually says, and the scripture says, and Peter rebuked the Lord. You know what the word rebuke means? It means to set someone straight. It's like a bone that's out of place and the doctor comes and puts it back in order. So Peter decides that he's going to be Jesus' physician. And he's going to correct his thinking about what the Messiah is going to do. And what he's going to be. And Peter starts to call the shots. And he's forgotten his place. When I ask you how many times have you forgotten your place and you start to call, you start to talk back to the Savior and talk back to the Lord and say, Lord, you've got this all wrong. This is not the road that I chose. This is not the plan that I, that I had in mind. And Lord, we're, you and I are just going to have to have a talk and we're going to have to straighten this out because this is not what I thought it would be and you're going to have to start doing things on my terms. So Peter is introducing for a moment, he's putting Jesus. At one moment, Jesus was first place. Thou art the Christ. There's no one else like you. You're the Savior. You're the Master. You're the one that we're going to follow. And then the very next Words that come out of his mouth, Peter's back on the throne. Peter's back to first place, thinking about himself. Notice the rebuke in Matthew 16 that Jesus addresses to Peter. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus starts calling names. It's one of the strongest statements that could come out of the mouth of Jesus to any person. You are Satan. And not that Peter was being indwelt by the devil. But that Peter was at that moment being used as a tool in the hand of the devil. Warren Wiersbe states this. One moment Peter is the rock. The next moment he's a stumbling block. I put here a blockhead. Right? Peter has a way of, 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 of stepping out of the boat in great faith and then the very next minute sinking to the bottom of the sea. You see, Peter at that moment had aligned himself with the devil. And that's Jesus' point. You see, the devil was the mastermind behind the attack upon Jesus and the whole gospel plan. Think about what What Peter said when he rebuked the Lord about the cross and the suffering stuff. Peter is coming out, calling out Jesus, saying, You don't have to do that cross stuff. Just take the throne. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to bleed. You don't have to die. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Just take your rightful place and claim the world for yours. Deal with all of those other people. 
and put everything in the right place. Just say it. You can heal. You can call people back from the dead. You can, you can walk on water. You can, you can uh, calm the winds and the waves. You can command demons to come and go. Then just bypass the cross and make yourself king. That sounded very similar to temptation that Jesus would face in Matthew chapter 4. When the devil took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, you remember the devil said this, if you will bow before me right now, all of this is yours. And in some instances, the devil had control over the power of the world. Adam's sin had cast all men into sin. For by one man sin entered into this world, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And the devil had deceived man in the garden by, by his deception to Adam and Eve to disobey God. And the devil has been, had been spewing his lies and attempting to circumvent the redemptive power and plan of God who would come and rescue man from his sin. The devil had always tried to do that. And here on that, on that pinnacle of the temple or that high place, he offers the opportunity for Jesus to bypass the death, suffering, and the cross. If you'll just bend the knee right now, I'll give it to you. Jesus understood that he had to be obedient to the Father's will. The only way that sin could be paid for is if a lamb who was spotless would come into this world and take the wrath of God upon himself for the sins of the world. Jesus had said, look down in the verse, in verse 22, the Son of Man, and what's the next word? Must. Must. Listen, there is no forgiveness of your sin apart from the plan of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. You cannot get the outcome you're looking for without doing it God's way. And Peter is trying to look for a wonderful, beautiful outcome of a kingdom on this earth and a place of perfection and healing and, and, and no sin and, and no murderers and no anything like that. He's looking for the perfect utopia, but he wants to bypass God's plan to get it. And it's the cross. It's the suffering. And at that moment, Peter becomes a tool in the devil's hands to tempt the Savior again to bypass the cross. And Jesus says, I'm not listening, Satan. I'm not listening. Whoever's voice, even if it's the, one of my closest friends, I've come to do the will of the Father. And the Son of Man must suffer, bleed, and die. Because that's the only way the penalty of sin can be paid for. You see, the scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according, according to his mercy that he saved us. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes there are people who think that they can bypass the, 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 the cross of Jesus Christ and create their own way to God. Create their own way for forgiveness of their sins. Maybe it would be baptism or by being by a member of a church. Or maybe it would be by doing some good works or being a good person. The scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. No one is good enough to reach the perfection that God demands. 
And yet Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a perfect and sinless life. And he hung upon the cross between heaven and earth. The scripture says, for he became sin for us who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He was sinless. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way you can find forgiveness and righteousness is not by meriting it for yourself. But by realizing what Jesus did upon the cross, he did for you. And the only way that sin can be paid for and the wrath of God can be appeased is if he crushed his son in your place. And at this moment, Peter in his selfishness is trying to see if there is any other way. And he's tempting the Savior. And Jesus says this, you don't mind the things of God. Peter, your thinking's not right. You're off on your thinking. Because you are thinking and minding the things of man. Your thoughts are, are manward and man-centered. You see, the Messiah can't rule the world apart from the cross. It can't happen. He must redeem man. There is no perfect place without God's wrath being satisfied. You see, Peter's body was going one way. He was following the Lord. He had dropped his nets. He had left his boat. But his mind was going the other. He was thinking of the things of men who was a deception, was being a deception of the plans of the devil to tempt the Savior for another way of escape. Now, as we look at Luke, and we describe that little scenario between Peter and the Savior, the Lord wanted to come back to the point that we left off last week. If you are new with us, we are studying through the Gospel of Luke and last week, we talked about Peter's statement about Jesus being the Christ as he asked the disciples, whom do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Making sure that what you believe about Jesus is very important. The following two Sundays, um, as we, we see this, in fact, uh, as we, before we move into the Mount of Transfiguration, I'd like for us to return to a couple of these verses that we read even this morning to help us to understand. Look at verse 23 of Luke chapter 9. Notice the choice that is being made. He said unto them all, If any man will come after me. This is an invitation to the disciples. I told you last week that I believe this is speaking to believers. Jesus is talking to his disciples here and he's talking to them about spiritual growth and sanctification, dedication and commitment, not salvation necessarily. I believe in this conversation, Jesus is drawing his disciples into a closer walk with him. This is an invitation to daily discipleship, daily growth, getting serious with the Lord. And we talked about that and dealt with us that, that last week. You see, Jesus didn't force you to get saved if you know him. He, didn't for, he, he, he drew you. He allured you with the truth of his love and his grace. And he said, would you come unto me and would you accept me as your savior, as your sacrifice? That was a choice that you made. He didn't force you to do that. And if you're here today and you've never made that choice in your life, not an intellectual knowledge about believing things about the Bible and about Jesus and about the cross and about a historical event that happened but that you have made a commitment in your heart. You've confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus, but you have believed on your heart that he hath raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. That's the promise that Jesus, uh, that Paul gives in Romans. 
And if you've never done that, I would encourage you today, leave it all behind and trust Jesus and Jesus alone for your Savior. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he talks about discipleship. He talks about the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. That same allurement, as you see the grace and love of God and you grow in that, that should stay your commitment and your focus. What is the decision of the disciple in verse 23? He tells him three things. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this is discipleship. This is what it means. The, the word deny himself in this phrase in the Greek means to disown, to have no association with. It's the same word that is used of Peter when he will later deny the Lord at, in his Passion Week. I don't know him. I don't know the man. That's the word denial, to deny. Luke 12 and verse 9, Jesus will actually use it in a sermon where he will say, if, if a person denies me on earth, that means they reject me and disown me, then I will deny him before my heavenly Father. That verse in Luke chapter 12 is talking about salvation. You reject Jesus with your choice on this earth, then when you get into the next, when you breathe your last breath, or Jesus were to come back and you were to stand before the great white throne judgment, if you denied him and the opportunity to accept him as your Savior, then he will stand before God and say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You will be cast into a place of eternal darkness and separation that the Bible calls a place of hell and the lake of fire where there will be eternal gnashing of teeth and torment. You say, you think a, a God who is, who is loving and gracious and merciful will send me there for all eternity if you reject His gift and His Son? He sure will. Because He must be true to His righteousness and His holiness. There's no way around it. So the opportunity is today is the day of salvation. Don't deny Jesus. Don't reject him today. Now, in this context, in, in Luke 9, this denial is not a denial of the Savior, but it's a denial and a rejection of self. You see that? Let him deny himself. This is not asceticism. The Roman Catholic Church confused this saying by thinking that it was talking about denial of comforts of this life. And in the 4th century, an elder named Simon who lived in Antioch built a small enclosure on top of a raised column where he lived for 37 years and never came down. People would come up from all over the world to watch him saying no. To his comforts. As he sat on this pedestal. Eventually 80 feet tall. Where they would have to feed him. By lifting up these, these sticks. To give him water and drink. Eventually the church hailed him as a saint. And it was during this time. That the Catholic church established the season of Lent. Which is a 40 day leading up to Easter of fasting and denying yourself of comforts like chocolate and donuts and ice cream and cupcakes <laughs> and the list can go on to say no. 
Jesus is not saying, to be my disciple, you need to give up donuts and chocolate and the comforts of a, of a nice bed with pillows and, and a car. And you need to go out into the wilderness somewhere and you need to suffer. And you need to say no to all of those things and wear grab robe and, and garments and, and wear burlap and, and, and deny yourself those, those types of things. Denying yourself does, does not mean necessarily this, this type of, of, of denial of comforts or, or, of, uh, or of luxuries of those types of things or of, of, of sweets and, and, and things like that. This is, this is meaning a death to your will. And I want to tell you, that's much harder than saying no to sugar. You think being a diabetic is hard? Try saying no to yourself. Try putting Jesus first place every day and not trying to climb onto the the throne and be first. See how that turns out for an hour. I've known some people who have given up some things. Let's say, for instance, the comforts of American living to go overseas or to a third world country. And yet God is not first place in their heart. The Pharisees prided themselves on all the things that they would give up. And yet Jesus says, your heart is far from me. In other words, giving up and denying yourself is denying your will and your wants. Colossians 3 and verse 5 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul says this, I die daily. I've got to put my will and my wants and my wishes aside every day to live the plan and the purpose and the direction of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran who was executed under the Nazi rule, said this in his book on discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to die. Die to self. Learn to say no. In other words, you cannot have Jesus plus all your own dreams and wants and wishes. You've got to be willing to let go of your will, your desires and your plans and your purposes. One author wrote this, to denounce self was to cease to make one the object of your life in action. You see, this is one of the main reasons that we're not seeing revival in our churches today. We have too many people who love their plans, their wishes, their wants, their pleasures, and their desires. We are seeing a generation of young people who would rather play video games than read their Bible. It's not that playing video games is necessarily wrong. It's when you choose what you want to do over what you should do is right. We have people who are willing, who would rather make money than come to church. Who would rather enjoy the American dream than to surrender to the ministry and the gospel around the world. You see, we can't say no to ourselves. We love ourselves too much. Scripture says... I talked about a gentleman who was a disciple of the Apostle Paul named Demas. And in 2 Timothy, he said, Demas hath left me because he loved this present world. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul says this, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Listen, Jesus gave his life for you, brothers and sisters, so that you would in turn give your life to him. So that you wouldn't live for yourself, but you would live for him. That's what it means to deny yourself. That's what it means to be a, a, a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. So to deny yourself, second, is to take up your cross. You see that in the verse. As he says here, to take up your cross. In the Roman culture, a cross was something terrible. It wasn't this romantic relic to put around your neck and hang in your house. History has set the cross above church buildings and auditoriums as jewelry on t-shirts, tattooed on people's arms or legs, engraved on headstones, placed on grave sites, set on hilltops above towns and highways, hung on walls in people's homes, written on beaches in sand, painted on canvases, memorialized on statues, sung in songs, written in poems, and glamorized in movies. The cross in Jesus' day was a tool of torture, an instrument of death. A sign of a curse, a crucifixion. It was a sign of shame and death and humiliation. It would be like for us today to walk out in public wearing an electric chair or hangman's noose around our neck. That's kind of morbid. To take up your cross meant to carry a load of humiliation and shame for the name of Jesus Christ. It was a humble robe. It was bending the knee. It was spreading your back. It was bowing your head. It was lifting up a cross. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. How he thought it, not robbery, to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, but being in the form of a servant, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. That's what Jesus Christ was willing to do. And if this world offered Jesus nothing but pain and rejection and suffering and beating and death and the cross, humiliation, servanthood, commitment, sorrow, then why would you think it would offer you anything different? You see, these men knew what Jesus was saying when he said, take up your cross. It has been estimated that during the life of Christ in the first century, 30,000 Jews were executed on crosses in the Roman Empire. Josephus records that in Galilee in 10 AD, Jesus would have been in junior high as a teenager, that under the leadership of a zealot named Judas of Galilee, who rebelled against the Romans... The Romans squashed the rebellion and took 2,000 Jewish rebels in the city of Zephyrus in Galilee, which is only six miles from Nazareth. And the Romans lined the bodies of the men, 2,000 of them, outside the city on the hills on crosses. Can you imagine as Jesus is a boy walking outside the countryside and looking over the city of Zephyrus and seeing 2,000 of your own countrymen dying on a cross? No doubt the disciples would have at least heard about this if not had seen it themselves, many of them being Galileans as children or teenagers. 
You see, we know nothing about suffering for Jesus in America. This statement was being told to a group of men and early believers who would face intense suffering and hardship for choosing the name of Jesus. We whine in America when we have to go to church with a mask on. But these disciples were beaten for sharing the name of Jesus in the streets. They were forced to have prayer services in secret for fear of the Romans. What would taking up a cross look like in 2023 in Huntsville, Alabama? Does that mean I have to die for my faith to be a dedicated disciple? You see, not every disciple in history had the same level of suffering. Not every disciple of Jesus was killed. Some of them lived into their old age and died of natural causes. Jesus was using the cross as a metaphor for being willing to pay the ultimate price. I believe that standing up for truth concerning the Bible is crucial to this question today. When we stand for the faith, that's the doctrines in the core of the Bible. Not opinions about smaller matters, but convictions of the faith. When we believe in the truths of God's word, we're standing up and taking up our cross. It is choosing to believe the word of God over the words of secular science, philosophy, Maybe, as Paul said, the teachings after the rudiments of this world. It happens when you stand against the wilds of the devil and the principles of the spiritual wickedness in high prices. It could look like believers in China that will stand for Jesus as God over the Chinese government. In Brazil, it could mean standing on the truth of salvation by faith alone against the Catholic worth-based salvation. In Huntsville, it could mean standing up for the existence of God and the creation of life against an evolutionist who denies both. It could mean in your workplace being harassed for going to church or saying your prayers before your lunch meal. It could mean sitting alone on a work trip because you refuse to be partaker in sensual and worldly things. It could mean just simply not being ashamed of being a part of a church and believing in God. And praying, you see, Moses said this. Uh, Moses did this in in Hebrews eleven. The Scripture says he chose rather to suffer the affliction of the people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That was taking up his cross. Instead of being quiet, not saying anything, Moses said, "If I stand up for this cause and I stand up for what is truth and for the people of God, I could lose all that I have." I could be ashamed. I could lose my place. I could lose my position. They could make fun of me. And Moses counted the cost and said, I'll take up the cross. I'll stand for what I know is right and for God's people. And I'll align myself with with the truth of God's word. It could simply mean that you are going to stand out as a believer and believe something different than the culture and the world. Because you stand upon the truth of God's word. It could simply mean identifying as a born again Christian. With your body and heart that belongs to Jesus. And for that your culture or your group. Or, or maybe your neighborhood or your co-workers. Could call you a narrow minded bigot. For doing so. You see Paul went without certain foods. He was willing to limit his liberties. For the sake of the gospel. To win people. That's what it means to follow. That means to deny yourself. To take up your cross. And look last here. We're close. Follow me. Follow me. In this verse he says here. Take up your cross daily. 
and follow me. The Greek word here is a military term. It means to get in step, to follow behind. It means to travel in the same direction as. It was used in the sense of someone being loyal to a person or a master or obeying commands. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and they, same word, follow me. You see, following Jesus means letting him lead. Letting him go first. He directs your path. He says where you go. He says what you do. He gives the marching orders and you step in line and say, yes, sir. You see, I read an article this week about unruly passengers on planes. We're going to fly to Germany here in a couple weeks and uh, just kind of think. I, I see it more and more. I don't know what the case is. Either they're, they're posting it more and more or just getting, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? You know, um, the pilot's flying the plane and, and you may be upset about something, what's going on. Just sit down and, and get there. The kid's crying next to you. It's going to be happening. They don't have any more pretzels. They're out. They don't have any coffee. There's too much turbulence, so they can't do it. It's just part of it, okay? It's just going to happen. But I read an article this week that the plane had to be diverted and land at a different place, and everybody had to re- get off the plane and be rerouted and trying to find their... Because of one person who was causing a fuss. Who wouldn't stay in line? I understand when things are frustrating and, and uh, you know, when you've been on the tarmac for three hours and you still haven't gone forward, but there's still, you know, you still got to show self-control to lose it. I wonder sometimes if, if, if we decide that we're going to lead, like Peter said, instead of following after. You know, the Lord may say to, to go to across the street. He may say to make a transition with your family. He may, he may say that, that you've got to go here or go here or, or talk to this person. Are you willing? Following Jesus means that he is in the front of the line, not you. And when you get out of line, you've got to get back in line and allow the word of God to convict you. Notice that the word daily is used here. Following Christ and taking up your cross and denying yourself is a daily journey. One woman said to a friend, the trouble with life is that it's so daily. But the friend responded, said, one of the best things about life is that we are able to take it one day at a time. Why do we do this? Why do we take up our cross? Why do we follow the Lord? Why do we deny ourselves? Well, he says it in verse 24, 25, and 26. If you notice the beginning of each one of these verses, the word for is included. For. 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 That's the word because of. Here's the reason. Jesus includes this reason. For whoever will save his life will lose it. For what advantage is it that you profit the whole world but lose your own soul? For if we are ashamed of the Lord, he will be ashamed of us. Those priorities that are set there, Jesus is giving his disciples. Here's the reason you need to do these things and you need to draw closer to the Lord. You only have one life. You only have one life. And if you decide to take it and do it for your thing, there's no redos. We're not playing a video game here. You don't get three lives. And if you failed the level, you can come back and do it all over again. You have one day. You have 24 hours. 
You have one lifespan, however that lifespan, whatever God gives you. When today is over, there are no redos. And Jesus draws his attention in verse 24, telling us, once it's gone, it's over. Don't waste your life. You only have one. So give it to Christ. Whoever is going to save his life, that means keeping it, living it for yourself, wasting it on the things of this world. You lose it. You give it up. Your life. It's a gift that God has given you. Don't go back on it. Give it to God. For, verse 25, for what is an advantage of a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? He becomes a castaway. What is he saying in this verse? Basically, he's saying, I believe the same thing that Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. I've tried it all, and in the end, everything under the sun leaves me empty. Because the only way to live life is to fear God and keep his commandments. You see, there's an allurement in this world that says the things of this world can make you happy. You can find blessing in, in, uh, in, in living your plans and, and, and doing your things. How many believers have you known who have walked away from the Lord be, uh, because of the allurement of the world? That it was so shiny and yet it left them ruined, embarrassed, and ashamed. What a fool they were to leave the table of a Savior who can provide bread from heaven to run to the pig pen of the world that will only leave them utterly empty. You see, this is the devil's lies to believers. That you don't have to live for Jesus. You can have the world and Jesus and it'll be okay. And then 4 and verse 26, if we are ashamed of the Lord, then he will be ashamed of us. I don't believe that's talking about salvation. I believe that's talking about when, when the disciple gets to heaven, what is the most important thing we want to hear our heavenly father say as our commander in chief? Well done. And if you're going to be ashamed of calling the name of Christ, if you're going to be ashamed of his name and bearing his name on this earth as a disciple, then when you get to heaven, the Lord is going to say, I'm not pleased with you. I wasn't pleased with what you did. You see, the first and foremost goal of every disciple should be to hear his Savior, to hear the Heavenly Father say, I am pleased with you. And in just a matter of a few verses, God will speak down from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's your example. Follow him that is willing to deny this world, to deny the comforts of, of, of the things, and to follow the Lord first and for, foremost. The greatest commentary on this passage of Scripture probably ever written in the last hundred years was written just weeks around the graduation of a young man who was preparing for ministry at Wheaton College in Illinois. His name was Jim. He was wrestling with this passage of Scripture in his devotions for some time until he realized the true cost of discipleship and knowing Jesus more than anything else in the world. And Jim wrote in his diary just before his graduation day, marked Luke 9, 24. He wrote these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He says this, we must all give away our life. When the stuff of this present life fails, nevertheless, God and his holy angels will receive you into everlasting habitations. He says, the fools are the ones who only live for this life. 
And they end up losing their own souls. They don't want to miss out on what this life has to offer. And they miss out on eternal glory. That young college student was named Jim Elliott. Who at the age of 25 gave his life in Ecuador as he was speared to death by the Aka Indians. Who gave his life to Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship. Father, I pray as we close this morning. Lord, what a, we, we are oftentimes ashamed of your name and the lack of commitment that we have in our heart for Jesus Christ and the things that we believe in. Lord, I, I pray that if, if there are disciples here today who have who have listened to the voice of the devil and believed the lie and started to live their own life and put themselves back on first place, calling the shots, going the direction, would rather enjoy the pleasures of this world than read their scripture and um, be faithful to their church attendance and telling others about Christ or um, actually living what they believe or what they say they believe. Lord, would you convict hearts? They would truly be dedicated and follow the Lord. If there is someone this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, all of this discipleship stuff was just confusing this morning, denying, taking up a cross, wasting your life. All of that is just kind of confusing because that person is still trying to merit their own way of forgiveness. And, and they've got to recognize that forgiveness of sin only comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And accepting that gift of grace by faith. Making that choice. Maybe there's someone this morning listening online or in the auditorium that needs to make that decision today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, in just a moment we're going we're to have the song played and sung, I will follow thee, my Savior. And um, I think it would be an encouragement to, to us to sing that before we close. But there may be someone here today, you say, Pastor... I don't know that my sins are forgiven. I don't know Christ is my Savior. You talked about trusting Christ. I've been trying to do it my own way. And, and I need to trust Christ this morning. And you'd be willing to raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I won't call you out. I'm not going to go grab your arm or, or twist or anything. It's a choice that you made and you need to make. But this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor, I need to trust Jesus as my Savior. I need, I need to accept Christ as my Savior today and make that choice and believe Him. And you would say by the raising your hand, you're going to make, you make a commitment that I need to trust Christ. And right now, in the moment before we close the service and sing the hymn, you say, would you pray for me? Is there anyone that's like that? Just a moment. You're among friends and people who love you and care for you. And you'd be honest with yourself. If you need to trust Christ. Maybe this morning there are some disciples that have gotten distracted and the message this morning can prick your heart that you're the distractions of this world and that Christ is not truly first place today. Maybe he was last week or last month or last year. But today, right now, other things have gotten in your mind and, and, and you've gotten back in and you're calling the shots. And Jesus has, has, through the word of God, pricked your heart today. And you need to put Christ back first place. And you say, Pastor, I'm going to raise my hand. I, I needed this message this morning and the Lord spoke to my heart. And, and in your closing prayer, would you pray for me? Is there anyone like that that would raise your hand and say, the Lord spoke to my heart? Thank you. There's one. 
There's two, there's three, several others. Just raise your hand. Thank you, several. You say, Pastor, would you pray for me? The Lord spoke to my heart about giving, giving uh, him my, uh, my all and getting back in the right place in my life. Is there anyone else? Father, you've seen these hands and you know the hearts. I pray that decisions would be made. That um, the scripture would continue to, to, to germinate in the hearts this afternoon. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we stand to our feet and sing this song by Mac Lynch? I will follow um, thee, my Savior, where'er the path may go. moment before we dismiss go home and eat lunch busy schedule maybe the restaurant whatever you got planned you follow the Lord will you get in step are you willing to pay the ultimate price I'm pretty sure that majority in here will will not have to do that but are you willing what is God asking from you I rest in thee I trust in thee Lord I place my life in your hands I'll follow you whatever cross whatever burden whatever path that you lead I'm surrendered daily dear heavenly father thank you for the message from your word I pray Lord that it be an encouragement thank you for the visitors that are here today they find a place that the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up and your name is worshiped and believers are encouraged uh, when they come together. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go and continue to work on hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.